Well, good morning, church. I didn't know he was going to do that. I think if I did, I would have said, no, stop it. Uh, that was kind of ridiculous. Um, I was like, yeah, I'm going to start off real simple, tell the joke here, you know, make things light. Um, and now I feel, yeah, all right. Well, I mean, he stole my thumber, thunder, as you know, uh, as you now know. I'm Dan Crosby. I'm, I get the privilege and the honor to be one of your elders here at Crosspoint, and it really has been a privilege and an honor, one that I don't take lightly. And if I talk too much about it, I'll start to cry. So just, just buckle up. I might get emotional while I'm up here. Uh, and technically, this isn't my first service. I already spoke at the Altamont Chapel, so you're getting, you're getting my second well-tuned <laughs> sermon. Um, as Jamie mentioned, my name is Dan. I've been here now for, gee whiz, almost eight years and been an elder for about four uh, I'm joined by my wife, Rebecca, and our two daughters, Evelyn and Daisy, who are 9 and 15. Um, we love Crosspoint, and we're so thankful uh, that we get to be a part of this family. And when Jamie started uh, planning for the summer, ser- uh, summer services and the, the, the sermon series, um, when he said the Psalms, I was like, oh, man, I'm in. Like, please, let me. I, this is my favorite book. Like, can I? I yes. Yes? Okay, good. Um, and was excited that there was some opportunity for me to open the Word. Uh, and like Jamie says almost every week, you don't need to hear me say anything. We need to hear from God. And uh, like a good uh, teacher, I, I don't have my notes sorted out. So uh, here we go. Uh, I'm going to say a prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Dear Heavenly Father, gracious God, I love you. I praise you. I thank you so much for the opportunity that we get to gather together as a group of believers who deserve nothing but punishment for what we have done against you, a perfect holy God. But we gather together in joy because of what your son Jesus has done for us. He has paid the price that we accrued. He has died the death that we needed to die. But he has rose again, and he is seated next to you, Father, ruling and reigning. And we are his joyful citizens, his joyful brothers and sisters, your joyful sons and daughters. Father God, please speak through your word today. May our hearts be receptive to what you have to say. May we have open minds um, to know how you are working May we show love and compassion to one another in the midst. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in Psalm 130. This is the last of the series, and I stacked it just right. I was like, the only way I'm doing this is if I go out with a bang. I'm just kidding. Um, But this is one of my favorite psalms when I had the opportunity to to choose. Um, I believe the Holy Spirit led me right here. And so if you are willing, we'll read the word of the Lord together. If you can stand, um, if you're able, and hear the words of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. 
My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For, the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You may be seated. So today we'll be walking through this psalm. Um, and I didn't do it in a very, an overly complicated way. I've broken it up into four sections. I'm sorry to say there's no alliteration. Um, but we'll first be walking and finding ourselves in the depths, then into recognizing our need for true judgment and true repentance, then into accepting the call to wait. And lastly, we will be seeing true redemption. But a little bit of context, uh, this, as some of you might know, most of the Psalms were written by uh, King David, um, and there was a smattering of others. Moses happened to be on the list. And this is actually an unknown writer, author, um, but there's speculation, and I like to believe it, that it's King Hezekiah, who was one of the second greatest kings in Judah. And, but he's most notably known for, although he rebuilt the temple and invited uh, the community back in to worship God rightly, uh, he also pridefully and arrogantly showed off his treasure to the Babylonian ambassadors on a visit one day when he was just feeling really good about himself. Um, and what I love about that note is it brings, it, it brings some some meat to the game as we read this. We understand that he might have been struggling with something that he had did, that he had done against God. This is also one of the 15 songs of ascent. Uh, last summer, I believe, we all spent some time in the Psalms uh, of ascent. And so as we know, those song, Psalms were, were sung, they were traveling songs. They were sung on their way to Jerusalem, uh, where uh, the Jewish people will go to celebrate different festivals, the festival of Passover, Festival of Weeks, and the Festival of Booths or Tents, uh, which Jamie told us about maybe a week or two ago. Um, what I also love is they were most likely were sung by the temple priests as they were entering, they were walking up the temple steps. So I love these psalms in particular, all the psalms of ascent, because they're working songs. They're traveling songs. And uh, of course, when I think of traveling songs, I think of things like uh, Sweet Caroline uh, by Neil Diamond or uh, Super Trooper by ABBA, because all of our windows are usually down and the girls are screaming at the top of their lungs. Um, but what I also love is what we just experienced. What generally brings me to tears as these two wonderful women just hallelujahed God. I don't know about you. When I come in here, sometimes I have a cold heart. I have a hard head. I'm closed off. And man, if it not within moments of hearing the first few notes of a song that I've known for a long time, because I know where it leads, I'm a puddle. I'm a puddle because I know that God loves me deeply, and he's rescued me. And my love for him grows. So my first question is, where do you find yourself this morning? What did you walk through these doors with? What thing is on your heart or your head that you've been struggling with? The psalmist, for him, he's, he's right out with it. Verses 1, in the depths. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. 
O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Work stress, financial hardship, uh, kids, family disputes, health issues, environmental concerns, those are all things that I think we could say would be, we could consider the depths. Things that we're caught up in, things that are bigger than ourselves, things that overwhelm us. But I think more than those, the author is talking about the depths of his own sin, being caught in a place because something we've done against God. Can we relate? Is that, no? Everybody's like, I'm not. And that's another thing. I'm really sorry. A little aside here. There was a, there was a, there was a pastor that came in a few months ago, and he was excited to preach, but he mentioned he likes a little bit of interaction. And I would amen that. So if there's anything, and I'm not suggesting there will be, but if there's anything that you feel that you agree with, if you hear a truth that is spoken, if you know that something I've said is biblical and well-founded and hits your heart, you can go ahead and nod your head a little bit. Maybe a little amen. Maybe a little attaboy. No, I don't need that. But we are a family. We're not a bunch of stodgy people at a board meeting. We love each other deeply, and we can express ourselves as such. Amen. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, when I think about being stuck in a, in, a, in, a, in a hard place, in the depths, the image that comes to my uh, mind is from a movie that I watched endlessly as a kid growing up in the 1980s. You might have heard of it, The NeverEnding Story. Anybody? Anybody? Okay. That's probably why our generation is so messed up. The story, if you don't know it, I'll try to summarize it as quickly as possible, which should be impossible, um, is we're following this young hero named Atreyu and his, his best friend horse, Artax, through this mystical land, trying to, uh, to stop what is called the nothing from destroying everything. It's really incredible. And in the middle of the film, as you've just been traveling along with them after hardship after hardship, they come to a place known as the Swamps of Sadness. It's at this point when I was telling my wife, she's like, oh, you go to the worst part in the whole movie? Yes. The Swamps of Sadness are known for capturing people because they overwhelm them with the sadness that's in their heart. And so you can only go through if you can think of joyful things and not be overwhelmed. And so we find, the scene opens when we find Atreyu riding Artex through the mud. The mud is already at the knees of the horse, and the horse is struggling. So Atreyu gets off and takes the reins and starts to lead him through like a good friend would. But then the horse stops and starts to sink into the mud. Atreyu pulls the reins. Come on, Artex. Don't submit to the sadness. The horse continues to descend and there's a fight. Art, uh, Atreyu's pulling at the reins, trying to coax him out. Please, come on, I, you can do this. And the music swells, that great 80s synth music, and the emotions are high, and then the scene cuts, and then we slow dissolve back in. Atreyu is there alone, sitting in the mud. Our text is gone. And I was six. Do you feel caught or stuck in something it seems easy to get through on your own? 
You're strong. You have smarts. You've trained for this. It's caught you. Verses 1 and 2 are the declaration of this overwhelming hardship. Our sin has gotten hold of us. It's bogged us down. It's swallowing us up. And what I love about verses 1 and 2 is it's permission to cry out. God is saying, cry out to me. Cry out to me. It's okay. I'm here. In Eugene Peterson's A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he says this of the author in this psalm. By setting the anguish out in the open and voicing it as a prayer, the psalm gives dignity to our suffering. It does not look on suffering as something slightly embarrassing that, we must, be hushed, that must be hushed up or locked away, because that sort of thing is too, shouldn't happen to a real person of faith. Mercy is known in the ask. We can ask. This first set of verses proves that. You're facing hardship, recognize it, and cry out. Freedom. Don't believe the lie that we need to fix ourselves up first. Don't believe the lie that we need to be at a certain place in our faith walk. We don't need to make ourselves more presentable to God. He's seen everything. He's not surprised by any of it. We just need to see that where we are is where we don't want to be because we need Jesus. But maybe we've chosen the depths on purpose. Is that true of some of us? We feel like we're actually here and we need to stay here. We're paying the price. Maybe that's a little bit of control that we're holding on to, not allowing God to show his mercy because we think we are too broken. We think we're too sinful, too far gone to rescue. I think as we continue in the Psalms, that's what the author was thinking too. True judgment and true repentance, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord who could stand... I'll be honest, I don't even want to go on. That's where I want to live sometimes. You're right. I'm a sinner. You do mark iniquities, and I cannot stand. And then he follows it with this. But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. God is all-knowing. He knows your deepest, darkest sins. He knows all of mine. He knows the ones that we kept back when we all confessed sins together. That's not surprising to him. We need to recognize our sin. It's so immensely important. Not to dwell on it and end there, but to recognize that it is there and that we have committed it and that we do need rescue. We know that the Jewish writer of this, regardless of King Hezekiah or not, knew what the payment was for sin. Though I do think it was King Hezekiah because he would know all too well. Rebuilding the temple, ushering in a new... uh, period of worship in Jerusalem. He knew what was necessary. The the story of Abraham and Isaac going to sacrifice something that you love desperately and deeply, but putting God first. He knew that it meant a spotless, clean, young lamb would have to be killed and his blood would be shed. It was, as Jamie has often said, a bloody mess, not something for the faint of heart. And it was not supposed to be. It was supposed to draw the community into the reality that our sin is gruesome and offensive to a holy and great God. Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness. 
that you may be feared. And this fear is not just a fear and trembling, but a fear and awe of reverence, of worship. We can go to him in that stature because we know what he's done for us. We know how he's rescued us. The writer knew that that rescue came from the death of this creature. We know on this side of the cross that that rescue has come through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. With that truth of redemption, the psalmist continues, the waiting, verses 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. This is the harder part, the waiting, and maybe even before that, the call to wait. Our God is calling us to a position where we wait and keep watch. This reminds me of uh, when my girls were younger, both of them, uh, at different stages, would have trouble going to sleep at night. Um, So we would go in and comfort them and pray with them and hold their hands and tell them that we wouldn't leave until they fell asleep. And this happened often, again, with each of them at different times. And some nights we could pray with them, squeeze their hands. They'd fall asleep. We'd notice the slow rise in their chest and very carefully sneak backwards out, trying not to creak the bed or step on the Lego. (sighs) Right? (laughs) Struggle's real. And inevitably, there were nights where that hand you were holding grabbed right back. Nope. Still here, Dad. Still awake. And I would sit back down on the ground and continue to hold her hand and wait. And it was beautiful. But then it happened a lot. (laughs) And I was tired. And I was hungry. I hadn't seen Rebecca. We hadn't spent time together. I just wanted to rest. I was impatient. And I was forgetting what I was waiting for. Scotty Smith uh, a pastor in Tennessee, I believe, uh, in commenting on Psalm 130 and his own, the condition of his own heart, says this, I can't boast for, that I wait for you more than watchmen wait for the morning. I've had sleepless nights, sure, but they're not filled with patiently waiting on you. Sometimes, like Sarah, I look to Hagar to speed up the fulfillment of your prophet, promises, yet I only create more Ishmaels. Like Esau... I reach for a bowl of instant gratification instead of waiting for a sumptuous feast from you. Sometimes, like Samson, I go out in my own strength, not in yours. And that never works well for me. Sometimes, like Peter, I take matters into my own hands, like cutting off the ear of an enemy of Jesus, forgetting that Jesus has legions of angels at his disposal. God, have mercy on me, a tired proud, impatient man of little faith. And I'll just repeat that last line for myself. God have mercy on me, a tired, proud, add in foolish, impatient man of little faith. It's here that I wish the psalm had a Selah. We've been learning about the term Selah over the past few months. It's not really known exactly what it was for. It's assumed that it was a musical notation to pause, to wait for the next stanza. And I love what Jamie has done with it. 
as he says, Selah, pause and consider. That's what we need. We need to pause. We need to learn to consider. We need to linger. We need to wait. So watchmen in the biblical times, that's a rough job. I don't think a lot of people were volunteering for it. My assumption was, like most armies, you would probably rotate that around. So I imagine when the job of watchman comes up, you drew the short straw. Of course, watchman in the daytime is a pretty simple job. You just keep your eyes open. But at night, it becomes 99% harder. You can't see anything. And so it's not hard to think, well, yeah, watchmen are waiting for the morning. They're waiting for the sun to rise so their job can actually be doable. They can actually see what's coming over the horizon. They can actually see the danger. Daylight is safety. Darkness is danger. Night is danger. And I know that's true in my own life. I think that's true in my family's life. We often say things are harder at night. We're always grumpier at night. We're crabbier. We're more loosely emotional. And so we shouldn't enter into some really heavy discussions because it might not end well. But it makes me wonder what the watchmen would hope for. It makes me wonder what we hope for. What do we put our hope in? Maybe for some of us, it's uh, job security. Maybe for some, it's family stability. Good kids, obedient kids, nice kids. Maybe for some of us, it's a future vacation. This, I'm not looking at anybody in particular just when I say this. <laughs> Maybe for a lot of us, it's the thought of retirement. Or like for me, just a good Star Wars movie to fix the franchise. <laughs> None of these things are secure. None of them. None are consistent. None can be hoped in. All of them can change and will change, and they cannot be counted on. We need something more. We need something of substance. The watchmen had something of substance. They knew it's east. The sun would rise in the east, travel through the sky, and, and, and set in the west. They knew, most likely at that time, that the stars would shift and change their patterns at night throughout the year. They knew that once a month, the, scene would, the, the, sorry, the moon would go through its phases, waxing and waning and full. I imagine when the full moon was here, they were a lot happier at night, but not by much. They had something of substance, something to count on, something to hope in. And verse 6 says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits for the Lord, and in his word I hope. Hope calling us to hope in his word. And surely the psalmist is talking about the, uh, the Torah, the, the first few books of the Bible, Moses laid down, the laws and the covenants, sturdy structure that people could go back to. But for us now, we have the joy of knowing that that word is also Jesus, right? Jesus, the Messiah. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the true Word. Amen? Jesus is the true Word. All of our hope rests on Him. All of it. 
All of it. And it's not a future hope about something that hasn't happened yet. It has. There is future hope, yes. But our hope is grounded in a reality of the past. Christ lived, died, and rose again for us. Amen. He is the dawn. He's the sun. He's the S-U-N. That's about as illiterate as I'll get. Um, He can be counted on. And it's not hard to imagine, but it's sometimes hard to hope. Novelist and playwright Thornton Wilder, who did Our Town and the novel Ides of March, uh, speaking on hope, says this, hope is a projection of the imagination, but so is despair. Despair all too readily embraces the ills it foresees. Hope is an energy that arouses the mind to explore every possibility to combat them, to combat the despair's ill visions. Are you tracking with me? Hope engages something in our minds that looks for all the possibilities to change the thing we're despairing about. And it takes work. Imagining is hard, especially for adults. Way easier for kids. I have a memory of growing up, playing with my brother and our friends. We'd go outside, which is where we had to be most of the time, to play army. Any stick was a sword. Any bush was a bad guy. Any broken down tree or shack or whatever was a fortress to defend or to invade. And the enemies were everywhere. And we were the ones to get the job done. And then I remember, I remember when we went out to play, and I couldn't imagine. The stick was just a stick. The bush was just a bush. There was no enemies that I could see. We were just silly kids. I think God wants us to continue to imagine. Actually, I know it for a fact. I think and this is my opinion, that when Jesus calls the children the inheritors of the kingdom, he's speaking a little bit to this. The innocence, yes, but also the great strength that they have, which is their imagination. Hope takes work, hard work. We have to wait, we have to watch, but it's our calling. Our souls are waiting, hoping, living together a life of sanctification. Um, One thing I didn't mention at the beginning when I was doing my little intro is uh, one of the things you might not know about me is that I'm an artist. I've been one ever since I've been a small kid, painting, drawing, uh, and sculpting most of all. And I've loved the gift and sharing it with my friends and family. And and then recently, in in January, I think, I joined an art fellowship. I applied and and, and got accepted to an art fellowship, um, which was a six-month program that helped Christian artists uh, live together, in the sense, work together, and, and draw our art and our faith, and see how they intertwine. There was five other artists from all varying disciplines. There was, a, uh, there was two watercolorists, there were two uh, dancers, and an operatic singer, and then little old me, just sculpting with clay. And I, th- I went in thinking... This is a bad idea. I'm not going to, we're not going to have anything in common. We're not going to really be able to talk about our artistic uh, thoughts or ideas well. It's just not going to work. 
very negative in my, my approach to it. Um, but I will tell you that on this end of it, that was totally untrue. Uh, one of my friends, and you might know her, Natalie Doherty, was also part of the fellowship. She said this line in her talk at the end of the, at the, end of the fellowship. And that thing she said was this. Beauty gives substance to hope. And she illustrated that by speaking of Jesus when he talks to us about considering the birds of the air, the beautiful color, the music that they sing, and the lilies of the field more beautifully clothed than royalty. Jesus was setting down some frameworks, reminding us what we can use to help us hope in him. For me, God in his grace and kindness has created this entire world full of beautiful things that point back to him. He has given us the gift of art, music, science, math, literature, but best of all, he's given us himself, the true word and the promise of the kingdom to come. Hope in the future, yes, but also grounded in the past. We hope for Jesus' finished work on the cross. And through his resurrection, we have been brought from death to life everlasting. Amen. The psalmist ends with this. True redemption. Verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I love what the writer does here. He's been spending six verses pleading, crying out to God, focus on him. Now he has experienced salvation. He has experienced redemption. And he recognizes there's others around that were in his same place. And so his attention now focuses on us. We all need the reminder of God's gracious mercy and his incredible love for us doesn't matter how long we've been a believer or if we're not even one yet. God loves us deeply, has died for our sins, and wants you as his own body and soul. He's achieved that through Christ. But the important element I think we need to remember is that we have to recognize that we need that salvation. We have to recognize that we're in sin and there's nothing we can do to get out of it. It reminds me of uh, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 10, sorry, Luke 18, verses 10, about the tax collector, tax collector and the Pharisee. And he says this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus continues, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Church, we must see our desperate need for, for Jesus. We must. We must continually humble ourselves, not put ourselves up on pedestals, throwing accolades at each other. We must be low. Joel 2.12 says this, 
It's the Lord speaking to us through Joel. Give me your hearts. Don't tear your clothing in grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord, for he is merciful and compassionate. God has shown us his mercy and compassion. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. The Apostle Paul says it better than I just did. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by his grace we have been saved. God raised up us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We do this in community. We have to. Maybe just a few, maybe a many, but we do it together. We live a life of sanctification together. We need one another to continue to remind each other that we need Jesus. God is writing a bigger story than we could ever imagine. He's inviting us to imagine it with him. We don't write it. He's written it, but he invites us to imagine it with him. So let's be childlike again. Let's stop, slow down, and imagine together what we already know is true. Imagine we are watching and waiting in Christ. He has heard us. He has saved us. And he is the light that is shining in the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome him. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, amazing Jesus, Holy Spirit, we love you. I thank you so much for all that you have done and all that you are doing and all that you have yet to do. I thank you for the promise and I thank you for the deliverance of that promise. And I thank you for the hope that you set in our heart for your future kingdom. Father God, may we go out into this week. May we be a community that looks to each other, arm around one another in hardship and peril, and say, cry out, hope, wait, and know. May we be a church like that. In Jesus' name, amen.